Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you. Today we're going to be in the new Christmas series that we've begun called Treasures of the Nativity, Enjoying Biblical Gems from Jesus' Birth. And so I want us to move into Lesson 2 today, and we're going to continue a little bit from what we learned in Lesson 1. In Lesson 1, we discussed the fact that God is an on-time God always, and all of His works are done and made beautiful in their time, including the very birth of His Son, of course. In Lesson 2, we'll begin to delve into the gems found in that treasure chest of God's Word regarding His Son's birth, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Let's begin at the beginning of the Kronos time clock and see its fullness of time as we discuss that topic, the fullness of time. As we saw, God's timing is perfect always. He is always on time and makes everything beautiful in its right and appointed time exactly as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. In the last episode, we spent a considerable amount of time drawing from Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, as we mentioned how we see there where Paul says, in the fullness of the time, God sent for the Son. So let's understand a little more about this fullness of the time that Paul was talking about. As we saw, it's talking about the full measure or the full extent the perfect, proper, and completed duration of a specified time that God had determined beforehand. We looked at the example, I think that's a very simple and easy example to understand, when we talked about the use of, say, a kitchen timer or an oven timer or a timer on your clock. When you would set that timer based on the exact amount of time necessary for a cake to bake or for some meat to be roasted or casserole to be completed and, and ready. In its time, then is when it's ready to go and you can pull it out of the oven and eat it. Same concept with Jesus' birth in that his birth also had a set, specified, and appointed time to happen. The timer was set by God. So let's explore the duration of that timer to some degree and understand its perfect timing. Then in the next lesson, we can move forward into the actual fulfillment on its exact time. When did the timer begin, so to speak, in regard to Jesus' birth? When did God actually set the time duration, and it began in regard to the sending of his son. Technically, it began before creation was ever even done. I want us to see that first from several passages of scripture and understand that truth. First of all, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is teaching in a parable here, and I want to read verse 34 and 35. It says this, All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, 
that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So he's quoting there from Psalm 78, which was prophetic of Jesus' ministry, these verses. He says here that he speaks in parables about things that were kept secret from the foundation of the world. In other words, they were concealed or covered over, not yet revealed and understood. They were kept secret, like the Greek word used in the New Testament when it talks about a, mis a mystery, a mysterion, something that's been there all along, but not yet revealed. It's hidden. It's concealed. Mystery in Scripture speaks of that. And it's as if when you begin to understand that or that mystery is explained to you, it's like pulling back the curtain. What's behind it can now be seen. It's been there all along, but it was never able to be understood or seen clearly because the curtain had covered it. But when, when that mystery, when the time comes for that mystery to be revealed, the curtain gets pulled back. So Jesus is quoting the psalmist here and he's saying that I'm going to expound to you on things that have been there all along. They've always been there, but you haven't been able to understand them yet because they've been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then let's look at Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, it says this, For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is speaking of the rest that comes in Jesus. It's similar to the Sabbath, and it truly is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, if you will, in the sense that Jesus has finished the work necessary for our salvation and redemption all the way before the foundation of the world. And when we believe in him, we can rest in that. The children of Israel were not able to rest in that and enter the promised land and obtain the true rest of God because they did not receive the word of God with faith. They didn't mix it with faith. But when we believe in Jesus, those works necessary for our salvation this scripture is telling us we're finished before creation. In other words, the decision that Jesus would come and die for the sin of mankind as our Redeemer, as our Goel, that decision was made prior to creation or the forming of the world by the God who knows the end from the beginning and already knew exactly how the world was going to go and what Adam and Eve would choose. And it came into being, it became alive and real, even before creation happened, this decision for Jesus to be the one to redeem us. Those works, those decisions were finished before creation. Then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he's talking about the one who has redeemed us, our Redeemer. As a matter of fact, if we start in verse 19, that he talks about how we were not redeemed with corruptible things prior to this verse and in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So he's saying here that this is that mystery. It was there all along. The decision was made before the world was ever even formed. But it was not revealed to us. It was behind that curtain. It was kept secret from the foundation of the world until Jesus came. So the lamb was slain before the world was ever even founded or created in the sense that the decision had already been made. Do you see, beloved friend, Jesus coming, dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead for our justification? All of that was never an afterthought. It was always plan A. As a matter of fact, there was no plan B with God. None. Zero. It was always plan A. The cross was never an afterthought. Then we see in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, it says this, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So here we see the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, the only one worthy to take this scroll. And then we sing this song of the redeemed to him in honor of what he has done for us. Then in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it talks about this and also it repeats this same wording and idea in Revelation 17, verse 8. In 13, 8, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, talking about the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So my point is, there's a Lamb's book of life. The Lamb is the only one worthy, and he has the names of all of those who have believed in him in his Lamb's book of life. But notice it says that it's the book of life of the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, before the world even began. So technically speaking, the decision for this timer to be set, for this baking of the cake, so to speak, was done before ever the world was formed. God already made the decision that his son would be the one to pay our penalty, to pay our cost for our sin and redeem us and rescue us and save us from our sins. This decision was done before the world was ever formed. And then, 
all ingredients to bring that together began to be done, began to be compiled. All of that began to come into place. And God created time and gave it its beginning, as we talked about in the last episode. Then the ingredients began to come together. Then God began to pull everything together. For instance, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us about the creation of the world and of the universe, etc. And it gives us the clear understanding of the fact that when God made man, he made man for a relationship. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there was a beautiful relationship between God and man. God entrusted to man the naming of the animals. For instance, in later in Genesis 3, we learn that God would walk with mankind in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. So there was a beautiful relationship there in Genesis 1 and 2. Then we get into Genesis 3. Now the serpent. The problem enters the picture. And he's the problem all the way through Revelation chapter 20. But in Revelation 21 and 22, we see the restoration of what God originally intended in Genesis 1 and 2. So the clock is now set. The timer is set. It was set at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God is cursing the serpent in this passage here. And he says, there's going to be one coming. It will be the seed of the woman, and it will be a he. And he is going to bruise your head. He's going to crush your head. But you will be given the opportunity to bruise his heel. And Satan did that in that sense when he was dying on the cross and his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross. Genesis 3.15 is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible, starting that time clock ticking, because God was going to see to it that the man and woman that he created and that he loved could be redeemed and restored to fellowship and right relationship with him as he had with them in Genesis 1 and 2. So God gathered together everything necessary and set this in motion with this rhema word, Genesis 3.15. That's the first one he uttered, and he said, there will be a seed of the woman, and he is going to do the work necessary. The time clock is now set and starts to tick. I want you to understand something, that even though this was a prophecy that in essence was dormant, we might say, for 4,000 years. There is no dud seed in the Word of God. His Word, when He delivers it forth, is a rhema word. It is a living word. It never dies. There is no such thing as death with God in heaven. It may lay dormant for a while and appear that it's not coming to pass. But this seed in the Word, this Messianic prophecy from Genesis 3.15 was working the whole time, the whole 4,000 years. Throughout the annals of history, we see more and more ways of how this word was working 
And God was putting everything together for the entire fulfillment of his plan to accomplish the work that was already finished before the foundation of the world. So all throughout those next 4,000 or so years, I want us to look at a few of the ways that God was working that word, adding to it, giving more revelation about it, and bringing it to pass. First of all, we see many typologies in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. For instance, Moses was a typology of the coming deliverer in Jesus the Messiah. Boaz was a type of the kinsman redeemer who would come and redeem. We're going to talk about that one a little bit more in a later episode. David was somewhat of a type of Messiah, but he also gave prophecies about Messiah. We don't always consider David a prophet, but he was. He wrote some prophecies in the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 22 about the death on the cross that Jesus would endure. Psalm 110 about his exaltation as king priest forever. Psalm 2 about him being king, God's king that would be installed. Psalm 45, the groom and his bride prophesied there. Then we come to Solomon's writings and in Proverbs chapter 30, we see where Solomon is writing about this man named Jekeh, son of Agur, and he's declaring what he had said. And he gave forth this prophetic word, and he says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4 and 5, Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Let me stop for just a second. In saying this, in this declaration, he is talking about none other than God himself, the Almighty, the Creator God, the Living God. Continuing in verse 4, what is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So J.K., the son of Agur, is prophetically speaking here and identifies the fact that there's coming one who is the son of the living God, the one who has bound all of these things in his garment and established all the ends of the earth. He has a son, and his son's name now is Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, the one that J.K. prophesied about and Solomon recorded in his writings. Then you come to the Old Testament prophets, and you have many throughout the Old Testament prophets that write about it. For instance, Micah tells us about the place and somewhat of the timing of his birth, primarily the place of his birth. We're going to look at Micah a little bit later. Micah also tells us about who it is that's going to be born. Because in Micah 5.2, if you read the entire thing, it's not just telling about us about where he's going to be born. It also tells us that this one who will be born there in Bethlehem is the one from everlasting to everlasting, and he will be ruler in Israel. He will be king in Israel. 
In other words, he's God in the flesh. God in the flesh. That's two places in the Old Testament so far that we see already that we're told that this coming Messiah would be God in the flesh. Both J.K. said that in Proverbs 30, and now we have Micah saying that in Micah 5 too. As a matter of fact, we also have David speaking prophetically in Psalm 2 about this very thing. We assume David has written this, although it is unnamed as to the author. But in Psalm 2, in verse 6, it says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Here again, the psalmist is another testifier to the fact that God does have a son, and that son has now come and is Jesus the Messiah. Then in Isaiah 7.14, we see the very familiar prophecy about the virgin conceiving. So he would be the son of the virgin, the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3.15. We also see that he will be called and named Emmanuel, God with us, the God who became one of us. And in Isaiah 7:15, we also see about his humanity, how he would grow up from childhood to adulthood, eating a diet of these curds and, and honey and so forth. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we see also another prophetic word that he will be the son who will be born, the child who will be given. And this son, this child, is the mighty God, the father of eternity, the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, and the king forever with an everlasting dominion. Then in Isaiah 53, we see how he's going to be the suffering servant of the Lord, and he's going to be the Nazarene, the branch from Nazareth, the town that was named from Netzer, meaning the branch. And Isaiah's already told us in Isaiah 11, 1, that he would be called the branch. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, we see that he is known to be Messiah, the prince. He would be coming on the scene and he would die, but not for himself. Even through the New Testament prophet, John the Baptist, which Jesus said was the last of the prophets prior to Jesus coming. In John chapter 1, Verse 26 and 27, let's read. John, meaning John the Baptist here, answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And he talks about how this one that's coming after him is before him. John's purpose was to be the voice, the messenger, coming before Jesus. I just completed a series, if you're interested, called Wilderness Man at the Jordan, where I went into a lot of different details teaching about John the Baptist and his role in this thread and plan of redemption from God. Jesus was before him, in existence before him, even though physically he's coming on the scene after him, and we're going to talk more about that later. But John is telling the audience that Jesus is the everlasting one. 
John 1.29, he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. So the entire time period, all 4,000 years of that prophecy from Genesis 3.15 onward, throughout, that timer kept on ticking, ticking away, ticking away, ticking away. And throughout that time period, we see more and more puzzle pieces, more and more understanding given to us about this coming one. Now, this pattern is similar and can be seen with Moses delivering the children of Israel from Egypt. I want us to look at that as we draw to a close here, because I think there's some key points here that will help us. In Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 7, it says this, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he, meaning Abraham, or Abram, said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he, meaning God, says to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So here we have the covenant that God made with Abram given to us. And it was in reference to the people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the land that God would give them, the land of the nation of Israel. And he says to him, your descendants after you will go into a foreign land. Your people will live there. They will dwell there. And for 400 years, they're going to serve them. But then I'm going to deliver them. So there was a time clock in a sense set here. And God was going to be the keeper of that. God was orchestrating everything that was needed during that whole 400 year time frame. Beginning with getting the Israelites into Egypt in the first place. And that came through Joseph and that famine that happened in Genesis. Then God gave them blessings through Jacob and Joseph's days, but there arose a new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, and he began to oppress them. And in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, we see where the people were crying out for deliverance. So God is raising up Moses for his appointed task in its perfect time, because everything else necessary was also being done concurrently, simultaneously. At the same time, God worked in three different ways to bring everything together for when his timer would ding, so to speak, and Israel would be delivered. First of all, the Israelites, they had to be in the land of Egypt and they had to be oppressed for 400 years. God brought that together earliest through getting them down into Egypt, living there and 400 years or so of their slavery and their oppression. About 310 or so years into that 400 time frame, we don't know exactly when this couple got married, but there's one couple that we get zeroed into 
And they're a couple that have a baby about 10 years later. And their names are Amram and Jacobin. Miriam was their daughter. She was about seven years old at this time, about 320 years into this 400-year period. And then Aaron was their son of about five years old at the time. Well, between Aaron's birth and Moses' birth, the pharaohs decided they were going to kill all the infants, all the baby boys. And so Moses is born, and there's the threat for all the baby boys to be killed. The Bible tells us, I believe it was through Stephen's word of recounting the history, where they would uncover them and kill them if they were found to be boys. But God preserved Moses. He gave Jochebed wisdom about what to do for this baby. And somehow, through Jochebed and her influence in his life, because she was able to nurse him after that, it, God just worked it out so perfectly. And she implanted the word of God in him as she would nurse him. And he knew he had revelation from the Lord that he was to be their deliverer. And so Jochebed entrusted him to God. Pharaoh's daughter is the one that, that found him, raised him up in Egypt. But then when he was about 40 years old, he knew he was to be the, the deliverer of his people. And so he kind of maybe was too eager. Maybe he jumped the gun and thought, now's my opportunity. So he goes and he kills an Egyptian. He tried to do it in his own flesh and he failed. And so he flees to, wil to the wilderness in Midian for 40 more years and lived there for those 40 years. Then at age 80, when the children of Israel had been there for those 400 years, roughly, in their oppression, God is going to send Moses back as the deliverer. So these two ways that we just discussed are the, most, the ones we're the most familiar with. But there is another part of this timeline that also had to come together to make everything perfectly timed. And it's found back in Genesis chapter 15, in verse 15 and 16. I want to read that to you now. It says this, he's, God is still talking to Abram and he says, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So in the same time period that God is getting Israel into Egypt and then raising up Moses and he flees to Midian for those 40 years before God's going to bring him back, there's another element that also had to be done and completed, and it's called the iniquity of the Amorites. In other words, there were people dwelling in the land that God promised to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abram in that land. They were not following God. They were very evil, and they were filling up their cup of iniquity. There was a cup of iniquity from the Amorites that was filling up because they were doing evil in the land. They were worshiping various idols. They were killing their children. They were offering their babies to Molech, their children to Molech, and all kinds of other evil deeds in the land that God chose and put his very name in and said, it's my land. And so God was preparing them while they were allowing and filling up their cup of iniquity. 
Now, God wasn't wanting them to do that. He wanted them to be saved, but they were so evil and so dead set against God that they were going to worship these other evil false gods. And so they continued to fill up that cup of iniquity, that iniquity of the Amorites that he spoke about in Genesis 15. And here again, in there, he said it was not yet full. Same concept as what we've been talking about in the Greek. It had not yet come to its full fullness, completion, its perfection, and there was still more to go. It's kind of like they kept pouring into their cup and pouring into their cup of this evil iniquity, and it kept filling up, filling up, filling up, filling up. And when it got completely full is when God was going to bring all of these things together and drive out these evil nations to give his people their land. So these Amorites were being marked for judgment, and it was going to come at its perfect and appointed time, just like the day when God has appointed a day in which he will judge. And it will also be perfectly timed when the cup of iniquity of the earth is filled up. So God, the keeper of the time clock, monitored and orchestrated all things to come together at their perfect time in their fullness of time. And so now we want to see in this study just how perfectly and exactly Jesus' birth came in its perfect time. In the fullness of time, God did send his son, just like Paul declared. Hallelujah. And we are enjoying those treasures of the nativity together. Thank you for joining me. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for the remainder of these lessons. God bless you today. In Jesus' name. Amen.